rhymes. I can't podcast when I run. Oh, really? I, yeah, oh, I got it. I got to listen through. To, I got to listen to Eminem when I run. Really? I'm an ang- I'm an angry runner. <laughs> Is anybody Hello and welcome to the Collier Democratic Roundup, the official podcast of the Collier County Democratic Party. My name is Jeff Spencer and I am the vice chair and host of this podcast. Thank you to everyone for clicking on. We have a great show for you today. We have an interview with the leaders of our local voter protection team in Collier County, Ann Daly and Marvin Diamond. We're going to talk about what they are doing to prepare us for an election in a pandemic. We're going to talk about the importance of vote by mail and uh, what they expect to see from the Republican Party during this election season. We also have our panel discussion where we talk about news stories that caught our eye throughout the week. This week we talk about the Republican Party's efforts at voter suppression over the years, both nationally and here locally. We look into President Obama's reemergence into the political fray. And uh, we go over the Rebecca Jones data scandal and how the officials at the Florida Department of Health are manipulating data in regards of to the COVID-19 crisis. But first, let's uh, go over some party info. We are extremely excited to announce that we have a new candidate who's entered the field, Miss Laura Novosad. She is the president of the Hendry County Democratic Women's Club, and she filed to run for the Florida State House seat, District 80. So we're really excited that she's decided to run. This means we have candidates in all of the Florida State seats that are up for election this year. So you can find out more information about Ms. Novosad's campaign and all of the other candidates that we have this election cycle on our website. Please check them out and volunteer to help them. I want to take a moment to encourage everyone to volunteer. When Donald Trump won the election in 2016, if you were like me, you probably laid awake asking yourself, how did this happen? There were a flood of emotions that came over you wave after wave. Anger, sadness, denial, but the one that lingered the longest was guilt. That feeling that you didn't do enough during the election to make sure that Donald Trump didn't win the presidency. And what I did was I made a decision then that I would do everything that I can to avoid that same mistake in the 2020 election. I would just like to ask everyone to... Please remember the way you felt that evening, election night, 2016. Remember the anger, remember the sadness, remember the denial, but more than anything else, remember the guilt that you felt that you didn't do enough to stop that from happening. I want you to remember the feeling you felt marching in the Women's March that January. We all felt like this was not what this country was about and that we had to do something to try to change that. We still have to do something about it. We have 159 more days to make a difference in this election, and if we don't do everything possible in these 159 days, we will have to live with another 1,460 days with Donald Trump as president. So please go to our website and sign up. I do want to mention a couple upcoming events that you can participate in on June 6th. The Collier County Democratic Party and the Biden campaign for president will be having a virtual meeting where the Biden campaign will talk about their efforts and plans here in Florida. 
They also want to hear from local Democrats about issues that are important to you. So be on the lookout for details on, on our website. Again, that's Saturday, June 6th at 4 p.m. Check out on our website, www.callyourdems.org. And then also all June, we are having virtual phone banks going on every week that are targeting local Democrats. We're trying to get people to sign up for Vote by Mail. So please, there are opportunities to volunteer every single week to do uh, phone banking. These are to local Democrats, encouraging them to sign up. So please, please sign up when you get a chance. So that's the news. We're going to take a quick break and then dive into our interview with our voter protection team. We know that everyone is going through a tough time right now, and many have lost their jobs or have had their pay cut because of the pandemic. Your local Democratic Party is a fully volunteer force of dedicated Democrats who are continuing to work hard to defeat Donald Trump and elect Democrats up and down the ballot for this November. This election is the most important of our lifetime, and we see how important it is to have competent and effective leadership in all areas of government, from the White House to the State House. Every donation to the Collier County Democratic Party supports Democratic candidates here in Collier County and helps us to educate, register, and motivate voters to get to the polls. Please go to www.callyourdems.org. That's www.callyourdems.org. Org, and click on the red donate button to help. We thank you for your support. So on this week's podcast, we have uh, the two leaders of our voter protection team here in Collier County. We have Ann Daly. Ann, thank you very much for coming on. Hi, Jeff. Good to be here. And we also have Marvin Diamond. Marvin, thank you very much for coming on. Hi, Jeff. Also good to be here. So, Let's start off with the generic question that everyone is uh, wondering about, which is, what is voter protection? Can you guys give us an explanation of what that entails? Sure. I would describe it as direct and indirect. So there are direct voter protection activities, which people are familiar with, including poll watching and poll greeting. And then are many indirect activities or secondary activities, which are also very important, including Uh, looking at gated communities to see if there are voters outside the gated communities that might have trouble getting in, chasing ballots, provisional ballots, and denied vote-by-mail ballots, attending canvassing board meetings. And then even there is even a third level which says, hey, let's mitigate the need to go to the polls, and then we could, that would be vote-by-mail. So there's kind of three levels of voter protection. So you guys mentioned uh, poll watchers and poll greeters. Marv, can you uh, go in and kind of describe what those are and what kind of things that you'd be asked to do for a poll watcher and a poll greeter? Sure. As far as poll watchers go, each party is entitled to have one poll watcher at any given time inside every polling location to observe all aspects of what's going on from when the machines are set up and through when ballots are cast and then when the machines are counted and closed down at the end of the day. And the job simply is to observe what is happening, to contact the clerk of the polling location if a problem is observed and in cases where problems are not immediately resolved by poll clerk to contact the emergency center and notify them 
so that they can seek relief from the superintendent. Poll greeters are slightly different. There is a 150 foot zone outside the entry to every polling location in which there can be no electioneering and no contacting voters. Outside that 150 foot area, which is designated at every poll, electioneering is possible. And it's also an area in which we can offer help to voters should they need it. And so trained voters and greeters do an important job in seeing to it that voters' rights are satisfied and everyone can vote at every polling location. So what kind of uh, incidents or items would a poll watcher be looking for in if they, you know, inside the polling location? What, what, what does an incident look like that they would be reporting to a poll clerk? I think some of the more uh, blatant incidents would be when a, a husband and wife come into the poll and they presume that they can assist one another in voting, which is not appropriate. So this happens and, and sometimes it causes friction with the clerk. And certainly when we observe it, if the clerk hasn't noticed, we need to notify the clerk and they need to stop that activity. And if in fact one or the other requests assistance, they can sign an affidavit and then proceed. Uh, the other I would call uh, electioneering is another important one, wherein either the poll worker staff, which has happened to me personally, or a voter starts to talk about uh, a certain party, a certain nominee, a certain candidate, and that, that that speaking can be heard across the room. And that's also inappropriate and should be brought to the attention of the clerk. What type of training would be required to so if someone's interested in becoming a volunteer to to help with uh with the voter protection efforts here in collier county what type of training and when will that happen well we're going to have uh, a number of training sessions starting in mid-june from now until mid-june we're going to be soliciting volunteers uh, for all of uh, the jobs we have with particular emphasis on poll watchers. And then the training is going to be to take place starting in mid-June. So you guys are rounding out a, an effective strategy here in Collier County to be able to, to uh, fill these positions of poll watchers and, and poll greeters and have a, a robust team in place that's going to you know, be at the polls and kind of report issues as they come up and be able to answer uh, voters' questions and, and be in, in a position to really help. But let's talk about why voter protection is important. Uh, Anne, can you go into what is the goal of voter protection and what, why is it important, especially here in Florida? Sure. This, the overall goal is to make sure that every voter's vote counts and that everyone can actually vote. So if, if you haven't voted by mail and you choose to go to the poll, that's when the active voter protection starts. But as I described earlier, there are these ancillary jobs. But you mentioned Florida. Florida is a very important state. It's a swing state. Uh, as Florida votes, as we found in the past several many elections, the United States is right along that same track. For example, when Obama and McCain faced off, Obama won by 2.8%. 
when Obama and Romney faced off in 12, Obama won by 0.9%. And you, will know, you know that they won also across the United States. And unfortunately, in 2016, we know that Trump won uh, by 0.2%. You can see those razor thin margins. So every vote is so important that we must make sure we are at the polls watching and make sure everybody casts their vote and their votes counted. As an aside, I think everybody knows Commissioner of Agriculture, Nikki Freed. She won by 0.08%. So that's the importance of every single vote. Right. And, and you know, the thing that people remember, I mean, living in a red county like we do in Collier County, every vote in Collier County is just as valuable as in a statewide election as it is in Miami-Dade, Broward, or any of the bigger uh, Democratic strongholds. And so every vote that we can make sure that gets out there can help in terms of winning that election. Trump, you said Trump won by 0.2%. That's roughly 1,600 votes per county across yeah. the entire state of Florida. So uh, when you take that into, into effect, small numbers of voters here in Collier County, while they may not make a difference in the local races here, uh, can make a huge difference on the statewide level. So, you know, th this is really important. So anybody who wants to, to volunteer, it would be great for you guys to sign up and help Marvin and uh, do that. Let's move on to, you know, how can people mitigate issues at the polls? Like, what are the best ways uh, for us to be able to mitigate some of the issues that happen at polling locations? Well, let me start off by saying the most overriding thing that any voter can do to assure that they can avoid problems at the polls is to request uh, a vote by mail ballot. You don't need a reason. You just have to make the request and you can do so on the website of the superintendent of elections for Collier County. The advantage of vote by mail, which is a very secure way of voting is that you receive your ballot in advance. You can fill it out, submit it either by mail or by drop-off in an envelope which you sign, and that's it. So you don't have to go to the poll to vote, and you don't have to worry about all the problems that could exist. Those problems could be obstruction from the Republicans, which we are anticipating this election, or it could be risks because of the COVID virus, the risk of encountering an illness if you have to go to the poll to vote. The thing, additional advantage of requesting a vote-by-mail ballot is it's an insurance policy. Even if you request and get a vote-by-mail ballot, you don't have to use it. If everything looks okay for you to go to the poll or going to go to the poll on election day, you don't have to use the vote by mail ballot. You just go ahead and vote at the poll. But if there are problems, and we know, look at what happened in Wisconsin recently, vote by mail is your insurance policy that assures you will be able to exercise your right. Right. So, you know, one of the easiest ways to mitigate it, as you said, is to, to sign up for vote by mail and to just simply not go to the polls. That would allow you to avoid it. But what are the top issues that we see with vote by mail ballots. Obviously, there's still some things that we need to keep in mind when uh, using vote by mail. So what are those? Give me three issues that uh, vote by mail uh, ballots tend to uh, encounter, Anne. So it, 
Great question, because we actually participate, Marv and I, in a statewide uh, effort, and Florida has a very uh, strong statewide effort. And we talked about that on our recent call. The top, the number one issue is that the voter forgets to sign the envelope. In that case, the, the vote by mail is put aside and it has to be chased and cured. The number two issue, the ballot is not sent in before the deadline. So the request there is once you get your ballot, please fill it out immediately and get it to the supervisor of elections right away, whether you mail it, whether you drop it off. And then there's this third category called signature mismatch. And that is when a secondary party signs the envelope and it doesn't match the voter's signature in the vote system. So many times if the say a husband and wife are both filling their ballots, they might sign, sign the wrong envelope. Or it could be that your signature is out of date with the supervisor of elections. So those are the top three issues that arise from the vote by mail. So people need to just keep keep in mind which ballot you're putting in uh, your uh, or which envelope you're putting your ballot in. Make sure you sign the envelope and that you get it in early. So if, if people do those three things, typically vote by mail has very few issues outside of those uh, those that's, three items. That's right. I would add that there's a less than one percent rejection rate for vote by mail ballots. Right. And in addition, I mean, we talked about the cure rate. I think this is important for people to understand what the cure process is. That sounds kind of foreign to people. You know, can we go over the cure? What are the processes that we as the party have in place? Last week, Jennifer Edwards came on our on our podcast and she went over the process of what happens to a vote by mail ballot once it gets to her office. Let's talk about there's a signature mismatch or a signature out of date, and you said that there needs to be a cure process and we chase it. Let's go over what that looks like from a party perspective. We have, if, if uh, a vote by mail ballot is rejected for any of these reasons, normally the supervisor of elections will send a postcard out with notice of that. There's also a posting on the website of the fact that the ballot has been rejected and there's a 46-hour period, a very short period right now, to cure. We will be monitoring that list on a daily basis. It's updated on a daily basis. And one of the jobs that we have uh, as the voter protection team, and one of the things for which we're recruiting uh, volunteers, is to notify the voter that their ballot has been rejected and to get them to cure the problem. In almost all cases, it's curable particularly with the signature, but it just has to be done in a timely manner. Okay. So yeah, we go through a process of, we get the information of all vote by mail ballots that, that have had a signature mismatch or have been rejected for some reason and need curing and we go after them. Correct. Correct. That's right. And let me add one thing, Jeff, for those who are worried when they put a vote by mail ballot in the mail, how do they know that it's ever received and counted? Again, the, the ballots are tracked and we can track and know when an individual voter has had their ballot received by the, by the, uh, the uh, superintendent of elections. And each voter can go on the website and track their own ballot. So you don't have to worry. People, some people worry that, gee, the ballot could just end up in the post office. Part of our job as the, as the voter protection team is to see to it that that doesn't happen. Right. And in addition to that, uh, most recently, even if you, for instance, if you did send in a vote by mail ballot and it did for some reason get lost, which is extremely rare, 
it's my understanding that the new system, as long as the supervisor elections has not recorded receiving that ballot, you can still go in and vote at the polling location. And that will be taken as your vote, assuming that the vote by mail ballot never got delivered to the supervisor elections, correct? Absolutely. Marv, you, uh, you brought up expecting uh, Republicans to, to do some type of antics during this election season. I was hoping that maybe you could go over what specifically are you looking or are you expecting from them in terms of voter suppression or intimidation and the likes of that? You know, voter intimidation uh, can come by muscle guys for the Republican Party outside the 150 foot zone, just walking around and making particularly a minority voters feel uncomfortable and worried. Inside the voting booth, uh, parties can have uh, their representatives. Each party gets a watcher and they can have lists to challenge thousands of voters that they're not voted, voting in the right place, that they're not registered you know, properly. And that can just slow things up. Even if those efforts are rejected, they can slow things up, making the lines longer and inducing some people simply to give up and not vote beyond, you know, beyond that. We're being prepared for the unanticipated. Donald Trump, with his recent objections to vote by mail ballots, has indicated that there isn't anything that he won't do to cheat to win this election. Right. He's also attacking uh, the post office. And what what does that do to your effort? I mean, if 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 the post office for some reason is unfunded or limited in its ability to to deliver post, how does that affect what you guys are doing and what what kind of things are you thinking about? In that event, what we would have to do is alert voters that they should be dropping their vote by mails off at the poll or drop their vote by mail off at the SOE office. We also have, in the event that this occurs, the ability to pick up completed vote-by-mail ballots and deliver them to the supervisor of our election ourselves. So that is what we would recommend. uh, Obviously, we're hoping that doesn't happen, but that would be a method to resolve this. And uh, last question, you know, the the thing that's on everyone's mind right now is the COVID-19 crisis. And you know, I wanted to know what kind of impact the COVID-19 has had on voter protection, how you guys view it moving forward in terms of having an impact on what you guys are doing. Well, as we mentioned earlier, we had a, a great meeting with the supervisor of elections early this week. And one of the questions we asked them was, what do you expect in terms of COVID-19? And also how many people have backed out since COVID happened? So apparently only 12 people have called and backed out. And during the presidential preference primary, what they did when the people backed out was they caused a lesser staff at each poll. They didn't close any of the polls. They just spread the staff out a little thinner. And I didn't see any slowdown in voting. I didn't hear of any slowdown in voting. So they were successful. So if this occurs during the August and or November primaries, we will have to deal with it as it is. And that's that's what the supervisor of elections is going to do too. They're going to play it by ear and watch what's happening and address the issue as it arises, because we don't know what's, what's going to happen with COVID. Jeff, let me, right. you know, add what happened recently in Wisconsin in a primary election as a result of COVID was that the Republican controlled state 
greatly reduced the number of polling locations at the last minute because they didn't have an adequate number of poll workers to staff the voting locations. And that caused a lot of confusion and longer lines. And one of our concerns is the governor may use the existence of COVID to take various steps to do just that. So suffice it to say that those are the things that we're trying to be prepared for should they occur. Right. And one and, you know, all of these uh, just give more weight to the importance of signing up for vote by mail, because, you know, if we can having drop off locations uh, and you get your vote by mail ballot, uh, there really is very little that Republican antics, either from elected officials or from intimidation type activities at the polls that can restrict you from submitting your ballot or you can just drop it off at the worst case scenario. But as long as the post office is still in, you can mail everything. So we again, we encourage everybody to sign up for vote by mail as much as uh, as quickly as you can. Lastly, I'm going to give you guys the opportunity. I know you guys need volunteers. Tell everybody where they can go to help out and what they need to do to help you guys out on the voter protection efforts. Sure. What we're doing right now is we're attending the local club and DEC meetings to give our recruiting pitch. And during that, we're providing our contact information, which we'll do before we close out. And we're also going to be pushing out training requests via constant contact so that all of our volunteers that we have on our file, of which there are over 300, 400 volunteers will get these requests for training and they can sign up that way. We'll also be doing our own personal phone calls to people that have been poll watchers and poll greeters in the past. So we make that personal touch. Awesome. So how can people get in touch with you guys? My email address is A-D-A-L-E-Y-01 at gmail.com. My email is marvelaw, M-A-R-V-L-A-W, at Comcast.net. And Jeff, I'd like to add that we shouldn't have to convince any Democrats that this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I can't emphasize the importance of everybody volunteering in some capacity It's really not enough this year to talk about how much you can't stand the president and then to think all you have to do is go out and vote. We really need volunteers. In fact, we need every Democrat to volunteer to do something. There's no job that's too small to be important. So I would encourage anyone, if you don't want to be a poll watcher or help in voter protection, There are lots of other jobs that can be done. Contact the headquarters of the Collier County Democratic Executive Committee at collierdems.org and volunteer. Here, here. Well, Ann, Marv, thank you guys so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We appreciate everything you're doing with voter protection, and uh, we'll make sure that everybody gets everything out there. Thank you guys for coming on. Thanks, Thanks, Jeff. Jeff. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our panel discussion. Stick around. If you guys are interested in hearing more about what's going on with the local Democratic Party, the Florida Democratic Party, local candidates, events, when they are possible again, and local news, there are a number of ways you can hear from us. 
You can sign up for our monthly newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or just check in at our website for all the local Democratic Party info. You can find all of these signups on our website at www.collierdems.org. That's www.collierdems.org. Thank you for all your support. All right. On this week's panel discussion, we are going to talk about voting rights and the efforts of the Republican Party to suppress voting around the country. We're going to talk about uh, Obama entering the fray again politically in this campaign season. And we're going to talk about Rebecca Jones, the data scientist at the Florida Department of Health, who has accused state officials of mishandling information and trying to suppress data during the COVID crisis. But first, I'd like to welcome Amber and Linda. Amber, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. And Linda, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jeff, and welcome to my closet. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I want to start off by saying um, there's an Atlantic article uh, that we'll link in the show notes from a couple years ago that is talking about kind of the history of the Republican National Committee and some of the voter suppression efforts that they've engaged in over the years. In the early 80s, the Republican National Committee was placed under what's called a consent decree, which barred them from pursuing ballot security measures after it was proven that they deliberately targeted black voters to try to intimidate them from coming to the polls or confuse them about their eligibility to vote. And then over the last three decades, the Republican Party has been found to broken that consent decree in 1987, 1990, and again in 2004. Each time they were targeting minority voters and trying to remove them from the rolls or confuse them of the rights. And in one instance, they even had off-duty police officers show up and patrol minority districts wearing armbands with the words National Ballot Security Task Force. All of these were found to be in violation of voting rights acts and just intimidation to try to suppress the vote. But in 2018, a federal judge removed that consent degree, and for the first time in 40 years, Republicans had carte blanche to pursue the voter intimidation that they were doing illegally in the past three decades. You know, I want to talk about that here in Collier County because it will happen here in Collier County. One thing that most people don't know is that the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, which secured protections for minority voters against discrimination, Um, had a section in it that was for pre-approval by the U.S. Congress, where uh, states, nine states predominantly in the South, and counties had to get pre-approval from the United States Congress in order to change voting laws. Collier County was one of those counties. It's one of only five counties in the state of Florida that was listed in the Voting Rights Act uh, and had to get pre-approval uh, from the U.S. Congress to change voting rules because it had been proven that they had showed discriminatory practices towards minorities. But that all changed in 2013 when the Supreme Court removed the portion of the Voting Rights Act that dealt with pre-approval, even though, even though that the U.S. House voted to extend that provision in 2006 by a margin of 390 to 33. So we believe that the Republican Party will be actively trying to question people's right to vote. Yeah. And you're not seeing this in, you're not seeing this type of intimidation at any of the polls in predominantly upper class white neighborhoods. And there's a reason why 
these efforts are being targeted to certain areas and there's no way that you can that you can say otherwise that why would they be there and not in these other places but i have never myself felt intimidated um you know by anybody's presence it's awkward but i believe that um nothing was targeting me shall i say well we don't feel intimidated because we don't care (laughs) but if you're talking about minorities you know there's a whole host of issues that they by nature feel insecure about and of course that's why they're being targeted and so what the republicans are doing just to clarify this for the listener what republicans can potentially do outside of that 150 foot zone is walk up to someone who is getting ready to walk in and vote and then ask them for what? Like, what is your license? Do you have a license? Are you a resident? What are the types of questions that they can use to intimidate? Well, see, and this is where, from the Republican side of things, as they are simply trying to make sure that voting happens legally, which is tying into what the president has falsely accused or falsely suggested for the last three and a half years, that there's this widespread voter fraud that's happening. Which, isn't, which has been debunked by every single study. There's, no, there's nothing that shows that there's any type of widespread voter fraud. Not to mention that to suggest that here in Collier County, where every single position is controlled by Republicans, is to suggest that Jennifer Edwards is allowing tons of people who are ineligible to vote to vote. It, it's simply not the case. Yeah, and if there's also... I've never understood this argument, because if there's this this ability to defraud the vote, this would be equally happening on all sides. There would be, you know, it's always, it's always thrown at like, you know, the, the Democrats and in particular, they want to say minorities or immigrants or people who they know that if they showed out in large numbers would not help their cause. It's always directed towards them. But if, if there is an ability to, to skew the vote, easily so easily that this is widespread phenomenon then it would be happening on all sides well and as you said it's it's like the argument that president trump made that he was he would have won california if it hadn't been for the three and a half million illegal votes cast there but that (laughs) argument suggests that yes three and a half million people voted illegally but they also 100 percent all went for you uh and and we know just from the law of averages and math, that that's just not the case. And so you're correct. It just, the whole thing is a charade to hide what the real intent is, which is to suppress the vote and to make it more difficult for people who are eligible to go and actually cast their ballot. That is the sole intent. I think also as we move forward in the, with the election in November and this Republican strategy to kind of just burn it all down, and, and create and obfuscate like the actual safeness, you know, of voting by mail. It, it's, it's almost like they're setting up a contingency plan should they not win in November by creating all of this um, <clears throat> kind of like a paper trail of warnings and this and that to potentially have Trump do some type of legal action at the end saying, well, we've said this all along. There's a large spread 
voter fraud. There's this and that. It is why we did not win. And now I'm going to sue before, you know, anyone can kick me out of this house. <laughs> Basically. Without a doubt. I think, yeah, I think he's going I think he's gonna stage a sit-in <laughs> come November. Yeah, I think we should all I mean, I think that's pretty obvious now that I mean he hell, he questioned the voting results when he won. So, uh, you know, it, the fact that he anybody who's saying that he won't question the results uh, if he loses, I think, is being at best naive and at worst stupid. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's clear that they, you know, they've been trying to do this for 40 years in terms of reducing people's right to vote. You know, I mean, Rick Scott eliminated the second Sunday of early voting. And that was specifically to deter souls to the polls, which is where black churches would all go out and vote on the Sunday before right. election day under some pretense mm-hmm. of financial benefit to the state because it was too many days of early voting or whatnot. But it, it's clearly efforts to reduce the number of voters that they don't believe. And it's the same thing with denying the restoration of rights of felons who have paid their their debt to society. Which... Which was just upheld by a Correct. court yeah, that this week. They just yeah, this week just approved that you cannot restrict them. You know that was particularly, it's still particularly egregious when you think about it, because the voting public of Florida voted by sixty percent, voted to restore the rights of felons. So a, a overwhelming majority of Floridians said that this should happen, and then the first thing the Republican Party does is to sue to prevent them from being able to vote until they've paid their, their the fines. fines. The problem yeah, with that fines, argument yeah. is, is that because they never kept track of what those fines are. So there's no way for voters who are, who are felons who want to register. There's no way to find out what those fines are completely because there's no centralized location that's telling them. And on second on, on, in addition, they made it a crime the Republican Party in Florida made it a crime to fill out a voter registration form if you have not f- paid those fines. So you fill out a form and what and and then if you, you register if you try to register as a one of the questions on the voter registration form for felons is have you are you a felon and have you paid your fines? And if you check that box, then you are illegally filling out a, for, mm-hmm. a federal form and it's a crime. And then it turns out and that you it turns out there's some font, some parking ticket somewhere that you haven't paid. You are held accountable. You and I, who are not felons, you're not holding us to that same standard. We can have as many parking tickets as we want. Or we can have as many fines and fees as we want that we owe, and it doesn't restrict our right to to vote. It's simply a way to produce, to reduce the number of people who are who are registering and voting. So, Jeff, moving forward, though, obviously the DeSantis uh, party is going to appeal this. Correct. correct. I would assume. Okay. So, but moving forward, though, since this was struck down, currently felons can go ahead and register to vote until a higher court reviews it, which could potentially be post-election day. Correct. Correct. However, and this is the this is the insidious part about it, and this is what Stacey Abrams argues for, and argues that you know voter suppression nowadays is not the way we think about it. It's not it's not what happened in the '60s where people were just universally re, you know restricted from voting. 
what happens is it's basically suppression through incompetence or suppression through bureaucracy and confusion. So now there's all of these stories out there, the things going through litigation up and down, you know, the court system. And if you're a felon and you've heard, well, I may be charged with a crime if I fill this out, but then the, then the court ruling says I can, what are you going to do? You're probably, a lot of them are probably going to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this out until somebody tells me what I'm actually supposed to do. It's not worth it. And that's, that's the intent. Make it as confusing as possible. Make it as bureaucratically difficult as possible so that on paper, it looks like, well, yeah, you're not disenfranchised. You just have to go through all these different steps. But those steps are designed to make it confusing and difficult so that you don't actually go through with it. This is just Machiavellian. How come the Dems can't think of any of this stuff? Yeah, yeah. For God's sakes. Because yeah. we don't, we don't, we don't agree God. with it. Um, Linda, do you want to talk about President Obama and his reemergence into the political fray? I sure can. Okay, so while doing research for this podcast, I came across an article uh, that came out in Politico uh, last November. As a former Obama supporter, as a proud Democrat, I had been wondering why the most popular Democrat in America and the second most admired man in the world, by the way, that was a poll that was taken. That was the, <laughs> that was the pronouncement. Obama is the second most admired Who man in the world. Who is the first? Damn, Jeff. I don't know. I'm curious. God. Was this person or that. man? Was this a person or man? It was, curious. Okay. it was a man. It was a man. So this was through a um, a poll that Politico did. Oh, maybe it's the Probably. Dalai Lama. I bet you anything it's the Dalai Lama. So the second most admired man in the world. Where has he been for the past three years? That is my question. We have all been sitting through this presidency. Oftentimes we we laugh because we just can't cry anymore. And we wonder where our favorite Democrat is. So I found this super interesting because, as it turns out, he hasn't been that far away. He's been quiet, but he has been steadily working and taking meetings in his office in D.C. in the East End, which I thought was really adorable that he actually works out of the World Wildlife Fund building. That's where he rents uh, office space, which I just think it's wonderful because we all love animals and pandas, you know, I just think it's great. (laughs) So he has been hosting a a pilgrimage, meaning that anybody that's interested in potentially running for the Democratic Party, anybody that wants to be involved in the Democratic Party takes a pilgrimage to come see him. And he is happy to meet with you. He is happy to give you advice. He is happy to talk any forms of, of party politics with anybody. So as the article states, early in 2018, all the candidates, and we had a plethora of them, came through his doors. And of course, a couple of the familiar names, you know, like Joe Biden, of course, and his friend who came into the race late, Deval Patrick, everybody made the pilgrimage. There was only maybe two of the people that ended up running for president that didn't come talk to him. So what I found really interesting is that behind the scenes, he is giving advice by three points. He is saying, be confident that you are the best person for the job. He says, think of the toll that campaign is going to take on all areas of your life. And number three, the most important question that President Obama is asking is, ask yourself, can you win? 
I found interesting. So the aim, his closest advisors say, and wow, and how he has been working behind the scenes is he wants someone that can beat Donald Trump. So as I, I was surprised to find all this because I had just assumed because Obama was this very classy man, he wasn't going to enter the fray the first couple of years of Trump's presidency because he is just a classy guy. And as it turns out, he's been working pretty steadily behind the scenes to advise and potentially help whoever is going to challenge uh, Donald Trump come November. What do you think? What do you guys think about that? So I think that the fact that he has not been criticizing Trump openly for the last three years, as much as we maybe would have liked that, I think that's going to give any type of campaigning that he's going to do in the next few months a lot more weight and strength when it's really needed the most. Because we know in this 24-hour news cycle how much things can make a splash and then it's down to a trickle the next week. You just don't even, people don't even remember it. So I think that if he's out campaigning in the fall, in the summer and fall, um, that will have a big impact and will have a bigger impact than say if this entire time he's been complaining about Trump. Yeah. I, I, I'm reminded of a, there's a Mark Twain quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. It says, never argue with an idiot. They will drag you down to their level and win with experience. I think that's the importance of Obama as a counterweight to Trump in this era can't be understated. I just can't imagine. I mean, if Obama took the bait and was doing participating in insults and, and name calling and taunts, you know, I honestly would really worry that America would forget about a more civil form of politics. Like, I think it's important for him because I'm, I'm with both of you. We, there's nothing that I want more than Obama to stand up and just lay out in excruciating detail the idiocy and ignorance of this administration. Uh, I, I would love to watch that. But I think him being a more quiet respectful person is as a counterweight to Trump in this era era uh, is extremely important. So I think last week, I don't know if it was the straw that broke the camel's back or we're just getting close to November. But when, when Trump threw out the whole Obamagate thing, uh, this wasn't a criticism that he hadn't levied on Obama before about this whole wiretapping this has something that he accused President Obama of right after he took office. But this particular time has gotten way more press play than it had when he initially said it. I just feel like it's funny that, you know, you listen to Republicans right now who are who are upset with Obama's criticism of the Trump of Trump's handling of covid crisis. And they constantly bring up uh, George W. Bush and his silence uh, and how he's, he went away and really didn't uh, provide any criticism of Obama when he was in office. But it, like most Republican arguments in the age of Trump, this one, it's pretty shallow. You know, Obama wasn't accusing George W. Bush of crimes at every turn. And, you know, it's really funny how Republicans lament the lack of decorum President Obama extends to President Trump by speaking out 
about his handling of the COVID crisis, but not a single one of them speaks up about decorum when President Trump attacks Gold Star families or John McCain or teenage climate activists or or governors, anyone anyone and everyone. Exactly. But when outright claims that Obama committed a crime with no evidence and everyone suggesting that this is completely made up, Republicans act like they won't speak out about that, but they say that Obama should just remain silent. I mean, that's like, it's just a standard example of Republicans holding others to standards that them themselves do not live Very up to. Very much so. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it's important to note that there has been no proof. Nothing has been found. This was investigated when Trump first uttered this, the first year of his presidency. There has been no proof. Yeah, so... um Let's move on to uh, Rebecca Jones. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing if anybody has followed the news this past uh, week and a half, two weeks, you've heard of the Florida data scientist who was ousted from her position. Um, she was the manager and architect of the Florida COVID-19 dashboard, which kept track of all of the statistics that were coming in about the pandemic. Um, So it started, just a brief recap, it started that she was removed from her position after she was, she had objected to manipulate the data. Um, And at first it was kind of unclear what, what specifically was changed. We knew that the dashboard went down, which is what triggered the reporters to ask questions in the first place. Um, But she was later, she was initially removed from that position and then later fired. When DeSantis was asked about this initially, he stated that he didn't really know much about it. But then shortly, um, I think after his press secretary, I think it was the following day, he began essentially a smear campaign against Rebecca Jones. And it comes to find out most of all the points that he was referencing in that press conference was talking points from a character assassination article from a far white far right website. It's pretty much everything that he said in that was quoting this this article. Jones had been pretty quiet. We had had emails back and forth. This is how we learned about this. But this Friday she came out on CNN, did an interview, and she also posted on her blog a public statement, which um, is if you want to look that up and you haven't seen it, it's geojones.org. She essentially explained in detail what happened. And essentially she was saying that the she was asked that when the state of Florida was looking to reopen and wanted data to support reports that they had already prepared, then some of the data did not match up, especially in rural counties. There were supposed to be certain thresholds they were supposed to meet in order to then be able to begin reopening. And many of the rural counties did not meet those thresholds based on the data. So she was asked to change that data so that it better reflected what they wanted to do, which, of course, she said she would not do. According to Rebecca's blog, she has email correspondence and all sorts of information that she can provide to show that what she is saying is correct. As, and this has been picked up, obviously, not just locally in Florida, but this has gotten national attention from NPR to Forbes to CNN to pretty much every national news outlet has discussed this. But it's just 
shocking, um, although not surprising, that they're taking scientists and trying to make the data fit their narrative. So, yeah, and I, I think a, an important thing to uh, explain is one of the things I thought was, well, what, what were they manipulating? And what Jones goes into is, uh, or an example of what they were trying to manipulate is the positivity rate here in Florida. So one of the things yeah. that the White House and most epidemiologists and even the state's plans, the Governor DeSantis's plans to reopen is to show a declining positivity rate, basically. And Jones explained, explained this on Chris Cuomo's interview where she says the way most people view uh, positivity is you take the number of positive tests versus the number of people, the total, the total number. number of people. Like you so you have total number of people who've, who've gotten a test and how many of them are positive. That's what people think of when they say positive. And what she says that they've changed is they switched it from the number of people who are tested to the number of tests given. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because hospital systems are often like, for instance, here locally, NCH and Lee Health are requiring multiple negative tests before they'll discharge somebody. So, for instance, yeah. if the same person is tested five times and test negative five times, all five tests are registered, even though it's only one person who tested negative. But if one person tests positive, that's it. It's one positive test. So basically, you're taking all of these negative tests and it's artificially lowering the number of positive tests to show a lower positivity rate in a effort, as Amber said, to bolster these you know, efforts to reopen, basically, to try to say, hey, we're going to reopen and we're going to find the data to prove that we should be able to reopen. Well, I like that one of the quotes in the, I think it was in the initial Florida Today article when this initially broke, um, one of the, the scientists that they were interviewing, he ends the article with, the virus doesn't really give a damn if you hide its numbers, which, you know, it goes back to the whole point of, you can say the numbers are what they are, but that's not going to change. The virus doesn't care. It's going to do what it's going to do. And another point that that um, an assistant professor of public health from Stetson University brought up in the article was that he says that they're pretending the public health is what has damaged the economy. They're getting it wrong. The economy is damaged because we ignored evidence to protect public health. Yes. And they and, and even before this, I know a week or two prior to this, there were allegations of the state hiding numbers. In particular, there was an NPR article about how we, in a crisis, have always used the medical examiners to track the data. Like when we have hurricanes or various other things, it's always been to the medical examiners. And they changed that last month in April to allowing the departments of health to control those numbers. And there was a big outcry about, well, what does that mean? So there's there's a lot of questions and how they're handling the numbers and what numbers. Well, and the reporters there. who kind of had already when they jumped on this, they had already been upset because of the medical examiner information changing. And they were also trying to get information about 
the number of outbreaks about the number of outbreaks in a in variety of places, including long long term care yes. facilities and prisons. Yeah, and, and prisons they just weren't getting mm-hmm. the information. So this story was right for the picking. And I mean, and if you look at just the numbers, you know, there's different ways of processing this data, which is what I would hope that experts would be doing. But even just the layperson who can look at the numbers, which are available online now, granted, whether these are, I, I think these are just reported cases when the cases are reported. But you can clearly see in Florida that after the initial spike there at the beginning of April, which was mostly contained in Miami-Dade County, they had the the biggest amount. And we started strict social distancing and all of those things that it started to go down. But since the beginning of May, it has not gone down at all. And in fact, in the last two weeks, it looks like there's a little bit of an uptake. Now, some people might say, well, there's also a higher prevalence of tests now. So that could have an impact on numbers, but which is true as well. But you also see the amount of people out and about and the easing of social distancing. We see it across just out in public. I see it with people who I know. Everybody's getting a little bit easier on what they think is acceptable. And it's it's scary because the virus doesn't care. And And the other thing is that it doesn't, it takes time for this stuff to show up. That's, that's the part that is so scary about it, is that the, the Center for Disease Controls outlines that symptoms will show up if they show up. There's a high degree of asymptomatic people. But for those who are symptomatic, it takes 2 to 14 days for symptoms to show up, which means that if you're infected a week ago, if your initial contact with the virus and you're infected a week ago, you may not show symptoms for another full week. And and to go on with that. So, yes, you could be spreading it. But that's the whole nature of the exponential spread of this virus is that you can you can decrease. We could do all these social distancing and closing measures and get the numbers down considerably. But if it's still out there and then everything opens back up, it will just like it did initially, it will climb back up to where it was before. And it starts off very slow. If you look at any any stats on the numbers through March, for example, where you see, oh, there's three cases, then there's 50, the next week there's 15 cases. Well, the next week there's, you know, 150 cases. Well, the next week there's 400 cases. And then it's like 2,000 cases. And then it's it goes up. So we might, it's hard to pinpoint a a large surge in a in an infection because it starts off slowly and people don't see it right away but by the time that number is large enough that people can say oh well something's happening here because all of a sudden we've got this going on by the time you get to that point it's already spread rampant throughout the community and then if things are open who knows can I just else? say it's so aggravating to me that we're having this conversation and having to explain that. We just went through that. We just did that. Yeah. Like it's like we're explaining how the virus works. We literally just lived it. We just like in everyone and people were doing the same thing that we were doing before. And people yeah. are like, well, and I'm like, we just lived it. We just saw that yeah. March was like, oh, the, the president was saying that it was not a problem that we had it under control, that it was 15 and it was going down to zero, that this is all a democratic hoax. And then the numbers went up, up, 
up, up, up, and then spiked. And then we had to close everything down. And now we're opening back up and people are acting like, like, like you have to explain that all over again. It is, it is mind-blowingly stupid that we have to yeah. explain that to people. Well, I think that um, right now, because of that very damaging press conference that DeSantis spoke at where he belittled uh, Miss Jones and, and cast a whole bunch of aspersions based on that capitalist uh, website article. Um, she's, she's got to, she's got to present some data because as of, or not necessarily data, I should say, but the proof she has that, that she was asked to manipulate this information because right now his smear campaign is really working and it is just playing to the populace of Florida that doesn't want to be home anymore. They do want to forget that this happened and they want to keep on going with their lives. I agree. She needs to come, come out and, and provide the information, but at the same time, I, I would like to, you know, say about the governor that he needs to, to prove some of his assertions, too. I mean, he, he came out and made statements that she's not a data scientist and that she didn't create the site and, and did all these things. And from her statement on her blog, she went into pretty exacting detail about all of that. This is one of the games that the right plays regularly, which is they mm-hmm. make statements that have no basis in fact, like illegal voting and they make these accusations and then they never back them up. Exactly. And then we have someone who makes an accusation comes out forcefully and outlines in her statement that she has the data. She has the email. She has the text Mm -hmm. messages. She says she has them. And on the one hand, the people who support the president and the governor dismiss all of that from her, but then take him at his face value. That's the thing that I've seen on social media that aggravates the most. Very much so. Yeah. The Florida Today and the Tampa Bay Times, they got to come back with a rebuttal to this because they, DeSantis just, you know, blew a hole in her credibility right now. And unfortunately, the burden of proof lays with her. We need, we just need more information. There's nothing right about it. There's nothing that can be remotely considered fair in this scenario but the burden of proof lies with her and and i i I would like it i i believe her charges she has not wavered her statements have not wavered and she says i mean that the end of her public statement piece it specifically says i encourage fair and rigorous investigation of these events through the proper channels and i think that we also have to consider that as much as the public would like to just have this information i think that there is there are there may be reasons why she cannot specifically release certain emails gotcha. now. I don't know what her. So I imagine that this is something that is ongoing and something that we will hear more from. And it does not sound like on her end that she is backing away from anything. Well, I think we'll uh, end it on that note. Amber, thank you very much for coming on and joining us. Thank you. And Linda, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. That's our show. I want to thank Ann and Marv for coming on. A very special shout out to Agent 13 for our theme song. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have 159 days left until the election, so please sign up to help. This country needs you to step up. Hope everyone is staying safe out there. Until next time, so long.